Welcome to the Odin Psyche Podcast. I'm Bianca Stone coming to you live from watery Brandon, Vermont. The hundred year flood over. We had a tornado that made the most amazing orange sky and rainbow covered in lightning. Montpelier was hit so hard. I was on the poetry and consciousness retreat before the flood in East Callis, Vermont, which was one of the best weeks of my life. Thank you everyone who was there. That was truly amazing and I can't wait to do it again. The second night of the retreat, my colleague and friend Candace Jensen had done a yoga nidra session, a process we discussed on the podcast a few episodes ago. That night I had profound dreams. You know when you know it's it's something, something happened. I won't get into all of them today, but in one of the dreams, I was looking at my house and I saw a big rotted out hole in the side of it. I was far away but watching it and I could see inside my, my indoor cat, Tommy, Tommy Paris. I could see him inside the house and he was about to get out and I was calling out his name and this huge orange wildcat approached suddenly and slunk into the hole and started attacking him. And I was so distressed and trying to say his name loudly and I couldn't, you know, how it is in a dream. The weird thing is that the next day my husband texted me to say that Tommy was missing, that he had gotten out an open window and was gone. And he's still gone. It's been almost two and a half weeks. I also dreamed that same night of a flood. I was watching out of a window inside a house I was watching the waters coming and could see people running and the waters came and picked up the house I was in and carried it away. And that next week there was all these floods. Well, what to make of it all? I'm disgusted with the idea of coincidences. I find that quite dull. And of prescience. <laughs> ah... Tiresias. Here comes Tiresias led by boy. I, I, I think it's something else. It's not just one thing at work here, but it's something. I think we're not as passive to the happenings in this world and of the greater consciousness at work than we think. We're not passive as dreamers, as Nietzsche said. Thus my dream found the world. This is the first of an open-ended series. I'll be facilitating on the podcast discussing dreams, since as we talk so much of the psyche and language, and the language of the mind and images and the ineffable and how images manifest in consciousness and all around in poetry, how could we not talk more in depth about dreams? And many of you had great questions about dreams that that I, I, I am going to talk about on the next podcast about dreams. But today, 
I was thinking about Roots, and I had been talking with uh, Sharif Shanahan about Roots on a previous podcast as well, and I love this guest on Bachelard. Uh, from the alchemy of imagination. A root is always a discovery. We dream it more than we see it. Mm, so beautiful. Just stopping there. In talking about poetry, I love thinking about the root. The roots of lines themselves and their meaning and how we dream so much of the roots of our very impulse to write the poem itself and that so much of the beauty of what ends up on the page that we work so hard through and into that it still has all this work left undone that can be taken up by the reader and by us as leader readers of our own work and that there's this kind of continuous growth and flowering of poetic language and images that is so similar to the sort of metapoetics of the dream itself and how we can never say something is just one thing. We get to continuously uh, dream and plumb the depths of the darkest earth of our consciousness and while some things break open to the surface um we get this incredible and powerful opportunity to still look into that dark uh side of the imagination and consciousness itself the root is the mysterious tree Bachelor said. It is the subterranean inverted tree. For the root, the darkest earth, like the pond, but without the pond, is also a mirror, a strange opaque mirror that doubles every aerial reality with a subterranean image. By this reverie, the philosopher writing these pages tells clearly in what a superabundance of dark metaphors he may be involved while dreaming of roots. I'm talking on the podcast today with Anna Bozicevich, who grew up in Zadar, Croatia, before coming to New York. Anna is a poet, translator, teacher, and occasional singer. She's the author of the books Return of the Leaves, Joy of Missing Out, Rise in the Fall, and Stars of the Night Commute. Her newest book is New Life, and it just came out from Wave Books. Publishers Weekly writes, Championing the confessional voice with dynamic lyricism, Bozicevich offers sonorous, textural, rollicking conceits and unparalleled vision. As her book is described magnificently on Wave Book's site, this Lambda Award-winning poet writes in her new book, For my birthday, I want a cake, revealing the color of my soul. 
Never saccharine, these palms are by turns cheeky and heartfelt, grounded and wistful, and above all, surprising. New Life is a book that is Dante-esque in its ability to commune with the dead without becoming fixed to the past. Instead, the palms here have a distinct sense of nonlinear time where each line feels like an ancient bone discovered, only to be reassembled into a Crimea of another self. In this way, Bozicevich continually greets herself as a stranger, reminding us that in some respects, every poem is a love poem. One time when I wanted to like kind of like fix the, pal- the ruined palace, I, I started lucid dreaming and I realized, wait, I can just wave my hand and it's going to become like perfect. And so I waved my hand and it turned into this like perfect, like this like modernist Disney castle, like brutalist Disney castle. And then I was like, that's great. And you know what? It would even be better with a rainbow. And then I waved my hand another time and there was a double rainbow above it. Cliché is also something you might be taking for granted like the way we take our life story for granted sometimes. Uh, put a double rainbow over the ruined castle with a touch of your finger, you set it on fire, the rainbow is burning. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank uh, you. It's so good to have you here. I, I've been spending more time thinking about how people begin their books and you begin with the paradoxical nature of love it's <laughs> uh it's ambivalence towards a certainty of good and evil and you also begin with the dream and you seem almost and, and I'm talking about I'm actually talking specifically to the epigrams that you use to start mm-hmm. the book. Um, you seem to be acknowledging these two forms, love and dream, uh, almost as two forms of, well, not almost, as two forms of consciousness, two states of self and reality. And, they continue to be strong threads throughout the whole book, to say the least. And I'm I'm wondering if you could could read the two quotes and then we could talk a little bit about them. Yeah, for sure. So the first one is from Dante's La Vita Nuova, which I shamelessly uh, took my <laughs> title from. But it's uh, also um, translated by Gabriel Rossetti. That's who, right. Yeah, you have a special relationship with as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the Dante quote is um, certainly the lordship of love is good, seeing that it diverts the mind from all mean things. Certainly the lordship of love is evil, seeing that the more homage his servants pay to him, the more grievous and painful are the torments wherewith he torments them. <laughs> that's so Dante Uh, but uh, yeah this this quote is uh, and this book was significant to me because it is about uh, you know Dante's finally explaining like the background that he's giving us this backstory of uh, how 
came he to see Beatrice and um, then like there is this very like dramatic scene where he has a vision of love and love appears to him and kind of like holds out his heart and shows it to him and tells him like behold your heart mm-hmm. uh, and um, I, f- I feel like something like right <laughs> something like that has happened to me <laughs> I think um, also in the dream world and um, it's really kind of uh, not just resonated, but it, it it's something that I recognize my own experience in. And uh, I actually am now thinking about, um, so uh, my the one tattoo that I have is spoken in the voice of love. It's from mm-hmm. an opera. Um, uh, it's from Andrea Chenier. And the aria is like, basically, it's like the French Revolution, uh, everything is in flames and uh, love appears to our protagonist and says, smile and hope. I'm with you. I'm walking with you. And so I had this idea that anything that any words that were tattooed on my body had to come from the voice of love. Mm. And so now I'm looking at uh, La Vita Nuova to pick the right quotes <laughs> in the voice of love. And I think like, behold, your heart is definitely a great one um uh, but then also this this quote here i thought kind of got across that like paradox of like love is almost like a kind of like a a journey or well it's an entity right but it's also this ordeal (laughs) yeah it's well and entities certainly ordeal absolutely and it and is more uh more multifarious and strange than we think or more simple than we think both, both <laughs> but you, to 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 say you can only have things tattooed on your body that are written or said in the voice of love is actually primes you to investigate further what the voice of love might sound like and might be like Mm-hmm. In such a, you know, it kind of prompts that investigation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I guess I wonder. Uh, and that one of the poems in this book uh, is kind of about that, like speculating, like what's on the other d- side of the door, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, like standing at the door of love and wondering who's on the, who or what is on the other side. Uh, so I had some uh, ideas, like uh, maybe love is the it from the phrase, it's raining. <laughs> maybe it's like some kind of like multiplicitous uh, personality. Uh, like uh, I always think of God as they, that seems very appropriate. Also mm-hmm. um, in terms of like the Trinity, <laughs> if you're going to look at it from a Christian point of view, if you're going to look at it from like a poly- polytheistic point of view as well. Um, so yeah, like who is it? How, how do they sound? Uh, how does it sound? Um, I feel like love would speak in like a chorus uh, mm-hmm. somehow, uh, polyphonic, vo- like a single polyphonic yeah. voice, right? What do you think? We are three. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. We are legion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but it, it's cool to see. I like this. Um, well, read. Can you read the second quote that you have here? Because I feel like it has really good parallels to the first. Yeah. So the second one is from a, a poet called Vladislav Petkovich. This, and I translated this since I didn't really find a, a translation that I uh, liked. 
maybe she sleeps with eyes beyond all evil, beyond things, illusions, beyond life, and her beauty sleeps with her unseen. Maybe she lives and she will come after this dream. Maybe she sleeps with eyes beyond all evil. Um, yeah. I love this one because, I mean, I, I love that this one coming after the first one because where, as the, the Dante quote, does acknowledge the binary contradiction contradictory nature of love um the second one speaks to a possibility of going beyond all of that binary altogether um and seems to play too though one foot i think still in this world not beyond with that maybe maybe she sleeps with eyes beyond all evil um there's so much potentiality in that maybe right there and it is so compared to dante's certainly mm. certainly the lordship of love is good and then the and when it comes back certainly the lordship of love is evil mm-hmm. um yeah, well, this this poem is kind of amazing. It's a, it's one of the most beautiful poems, like in my language, I think. And um, it's inspiration. Uh, it's yeah. It's um, th- this. I think was uh, Serbian, but it's essentially yeah. Uh, despite the uh, recent war, it's it's uh, those two languages are um, are siblings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the the poem actually begins with the words. Uh, this morning I forgot a song or a poem because the word for poem and song is the same in oh our God. language, which is really cool. So, so it's kind of like about hearing this uh, amazing um, song or poem um, in your dream. And it was like everything, uh, the most beautiful thing ever, uh, you know, all, all the joy of the world. And of course, like there is a person there, there is like the she of the dreams. And so, right. you know, he encounters the ideal beloved and hears uh, the like dream song. Um, and uh, so then when he wakes up, it it's still somewhere with him and he writes this poem. And this poem really does, when I read it, it's one of those poems that feels like, wow, where did this come from? It really feels like it came from some other realm. And I'm sure you like, you have poems that when you read, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You get that impression. So it was very meaningful to me. And then uh, it kind of gained an extra meaning. Um, so uh, this book is dedicated to my friend Tamara, who uh, passed away before the book was published. Hmm. And in, in a way, this um, this quote uh, kind of almost became about her too, about like, uh, you know. Uh, you mean this poem that you translated? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, became about, uh, you know, maybe after the dream of life, we see each other again. Mm, so it, so it got this sort of uh, kind of poignant personal meaning as well. Maybe yeah. after the dream mm. of life, we'll see each other again. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, Your new book is called New Life. And of course, that title alone has incredible connotations with the possibility of renewal, um, rebirth, catharsis. Appropriately, you begin the book with a poem called Birthday. 
<laughs> I was wondering if you could read that for us. Oh, sure. I'd love to read Birthday. Um, so, yeah, it seemed like the right way to start. And um, also, I feel like it's kind of one of my top two poems in this book. Um, so, Birthday. Um, if the sky is such a cliche, why is it falling? If the tree is such a cliché, why is it dying? If soul is such a cliché, where is it hiding? If love is such a cliché, why isn't there enough to go around? For my part, I can't get enough of the sky. For my part, I can't wait for those leaves to come back. For my party, I'm inviting the clown love. For my birthday, I want a cake revealing the color of my soul. It's so I love this poem so much. Oh, thank you. I mean, the inversion of the cliche and our revisiting of it in the actual poem, the questioning of what we take for granted felt to me exactly like a birthday, a new life for seemingly dead meaning in language. And it it walked so perfectly into the very next poem. And I, I know you just read that poem, but I feel like reading the next poem after that poem also is really helpful to talking about both of them. Oh, sure. So here's New Life. And that's the eponymous poem. Um, I think about it every day to just leave and start life among some other people in a little town in the middle of America. I would tell them my name was whatever. Think of some random name and say it. I'd work in a diner, put out the pie, coffee, and burgers at the counter, the echo of great cities where everyone I ever loved, everyone who ever hurt me, anyone I ever hurted wouldn't reach. Lost among fields and mountains and highways, I wouldn't have anything much. Unknown and safe, in witness protection from crimes of the heart, Outside the merciless glare of my story that blinds me, bumps into me, always spinning so I see the back of her head and her face all at once, the one that tells me, you failed to live me, sang off tune like a shitty orchestra, and that's why no one loves you enough to stay. Shut up, Anna, I would say. The name's Linda. <laughs> so... I mean, definitely that poem. So it's kind of like about the new life in terms of like immigration, you know, mm -hmm. but also yeah. like the kind of marvelous thing about America, which I guess is less uh, possible now because of uh, digital identification uh, panopticon <laughs> uh, is this idea that you could just like pick up and move and, you know, be somebody else in the next town over or in the next neighborhood over in New York City or uh, something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely thought about the fact that you did grow up in in war-torn Croatia and were forced or forced to move to the United States or you came to the United States to um with your family when you were a teenager and this sort of I love this sort of feeling in all your poems of starting over and being moved and displaced and like somehow you have this miraculous way of keeping the joy and possibility in the feeling, in the grief of it, in the, the disruption of it. Um, I was curious about 
uh, your earliest experiences with poetry and how that's evolved since you came to the United States or mm-hmm. if poetry found you here? Yeah, um, well, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I did write poem when I was little. <laughs> and uh, my dad was a little bit of a poet and uh, he might not admit it now, but uh, this was this was like how my dad courted my mom is he wrote her these uh, romantic uh, little poems, short poems. Uh, and s- some of them still survive. Um, but so there was like, I had the fortune of both my parents, um, you know, being kind of brainiacs and my dad was like a total bookworm. So he like grew up on the farm, but he, he always had his head in a book and, um, you know, he was like the first one of his family to go to college. So the house was full of books. And so there was poetry around and I read it and I loved it. And I remember, you know, um, like I remember being like in fifth grade and reading poetry, like rhyming poetry in creation. Um, uh, it was this poet, Vidrich, uh, uh, who is, you know, one of those anthology poets, kind of like anthologized, like Frost is here or right. something. But he had like something, he really had like an amazing um, sort of like lyrical spirit. And I loved it. And I started writing rhyming poetry, kind of like to imitate. I wrote some like very dramatic free verse uh poetry that like was totally not uh, consonant to my age it was something about like falling in the mud of your life <laughs> like fl- <laughs> flying but yeah. uh you know it with heavy wings I'm still very mud. Anna <laughs> yeah <laughs> I remember showing that poem to my dad and he was like wow this is deep and I felt very proud of myself but I think I was imitating someone uh, but I, but I also like I remember talking to like a friend. And this is one of those moments when you realize, oh, I'm a nerd, I'm a weirdo. Talking to a friend because we had to learn a poem by heart for uh, like creation class uh, and for li- literature class, mm-hmm. and it was in a dialect, and I like loved it. Um, I loved having to learn it, and I was so excited. I was like hoping that I'm asked to do it, and my friend was looking at me like I was completely out of my mind. <laughs> Like, like what is how can you like this this is horrible <laughs> like is is like equivalent of like reading in old english like reading chaucer or something yeah or like yeah or something like yeah or, or like for example something in like a scottish dialect or something I see. Like yeah yeah um, yeah um so uh yeah yeah so I, I think it was something that was with me uh from the beginning but then I I always always think about um like I was actually just talking to uh students about this um just like that relationship to like mystery a relationship to measure these are things I think that happen on like quite early on and like an early memory I have is uh, sitting in the grass behind the stable at this farm where my father grew up, uh, my grandparents' farm, and looking at frost crystals on rocks and on grass. And mm-hmm. at that time, I didn't know letters yet. So the shapes that were like traced by the whore uh, on the rocks resembled letters to me. And I thought it was, it, it like said something, you know, and I was frustrated. Yeah. I was like frustrated. I couldn't read because I thought it like that there was something to be read there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just kind of like observing things like almost as though everything was legible, like looking at like trees in the orchard and counting them, like kind of like early beginnings of measure you know like oh my god if only you know we're always trying to get back to that I feel like that seeing seeing the world around us as if it is 
something written that we can read. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, record. That's right. Yeah. So like the world is a book. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's so hard to say, you know, is it like your first poem that uh, made you a poet or was it like those early observations and kind of wanting to hang on to that way of seeing things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, I'm, I'm curious about you now. <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be about me, but how about you? What about you, Bianca? I know you were always writing poems. Well, I too was very, I mean, I think children who see a parent or a caretaker writing and being really, you know, especially it sounds like too, love was very much involved for your dad and your mm-hmm. mom in, in how writing happened. Um, so you sort of see these people doing it and you're imitating them and you see that there's something really interesting and curious going on there. But also at a very young age, my daughter is six right now, so I get to see how her mind works with language. And, you know, it's really right before they've been ruined by education. (laughs) Like ideas of communication. I mean, education is wonderful, but in terms of like poetry, it's not. um, No. As you know. Uh, But yeah, I I had, I, I was really writing little poems when I was really little. And I remember I still have it in a little tiny book. I had little, these little teeny weeny notebooks and I would write little teeny weeny poems in them about like bear. I had one about a berry um, that was felt very real to me and love and love too. Of course, love's always, you think. Oh, I want to see the one about the berry. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I remember the uh, in fifth grade, we, we had to write a haiku and I wrote a haiku that I thought was really funny and good. And I got an F. And, oh my God. You got an F on your fucking haiku? And, and the haiku went, I remember it to this day, agile and quick. He wanders in the field, the potato. <laughs> <laughs> Like the one thing that can't wander in a field, I love it. And and like you know what I think, what I was but thinking does wander is, in the field. Well, right, exactly, roots, but wander. Also, yeah. I think I was like imagining, you know, when they dig them up and they're all like, there's a bunch of them, you know, it's yeah, almost yeah. like uh, like a kind of like a speed shot of like one potato yeah. zipping <laughs> zipping yeah. around or something like that. So anyway. Uh. But I wasn't discouraged, Bianca. I persevered. You persevered, yeah. I mean, you've got to overcome that. I I'll never forget. Like it must have been third or fourth grade, and everyone was supposed to write a poem, and like you could, you know, it was sort of an early foray into like making a little like literary magazine in class, and there was like a little committee of people who would like decide what goes in, and like I was on the committee, but um. And the boy I had a crush on, Peter McIntyre, was also in the committee oh, too. And that's I was trying right. to impress him. And he always wrote like rhyming poems that were like Calvin and Hob- about Calvin and Hobbes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so funny. Nice. But uh, this other boy in the group said that it just shouldn't go in because it didn't rhyme and they didn't understand that. And I, it was my like, I was sort of like, 
I guess I was a snob even in third grade about poetry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't have to rhyme. <laughs> no. Like, this is boring. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that was so funny. That's um, Anyway, but but speaking of the stories, I one thing that I loved in this poem that you just read, um, oh, outside the merciless glare of my story that blinds me, I feel like that was so it, and you know it speaks exactly to the birthday poem. I in a in a way that you know we get so and it, to the idea of cliche, right? Um, that that in some ways our own stories of our own life become like a tired cliche that we can't get out of mm-hmm. and we can't make them new. And in and in this, it's not that your story isn't important and valid. It's just that you're blind to what's actually the the like those those crystalline, you know, hoarfrost parts of your story that you were seeing as a little child on the rock like if you're able to sort of find um a new new possibility within your own life but and not be clinging to this um idea that you've of what it is um i just love that so much Um, yeah yeah, I mean, it's true. Uh, well, that figure, so I describe it as like a figure that's spinning so I can see the back of her right. head and her face all at once. So it's kind of like some kind of fate figure. But actually, that did come from a dream. And that figure appears in, in uh, my last book as well. Um, so I had this vision of this, like, in my dream, I felt it as like a, a feminine entity, femme entity, uh, that was also kind of terrible. Um, so, um, you know, she was an entity that was girls kind of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So she, and and she was, she was like, she had this kind of uncanny presence where she was sort of like spinning, but like spinning, like a hummingbird flaps its wings. So you can't see it like spinning so fast that like you could always see the front of her head, but you kind of vaguely saw the back of her head and she was kind of like there for me. She was like, what are you doing? You know, like, um, and actually, uh, there's a, that Lucille Clifton poem um it was a dream uh, that reminds me so much of that um with the uh, hair figure yeah it's it, yeah. it kind of like i always get the chills when i uh read that poem because i'm like oh my god it's, it's her <laughs> it's her yeah. um yeah. you know it's but it's like but like it's me right um right. so then like, is it is it like some sort of like fate figure or is it uh like the uh core of my uh you know, a soul, uh, or like some sort of, uh, expansive identity that I don't really have access to except in dreams that includes me and, and some archetypal or mythical components. And, you know, speaking of cliches, like, I feel like that's, uh, so in birthday, you know, I think I re- I read some, it was like some poetry article, like how to write poetry. It was like, don't use words like dream or bone or soul, you know, those are, cl- or rose, God forbid, like those, those are cliches. And of course, like my impulse is always like, who says that, you know, and why shouldn't I say that? And, you know, these are, these are things that uh, there's a dearth of, like there is a dearth of soul, like the roses are dying, you know, so uh, soon, you know, they might become extinct and, you know, where, where are cliches then? So like cliche is also something you might be taking for granted. Um, mm-hmm. 
like the way we take our life story for granted sometimes. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a lot, a lot about archetype in there as well. Totally. And, and thinking about these, there, these visitors who come in our sleep and how they seem to come, they seem to come back again. You know, if, if there's something that you're, um, wrestling with and I've, you know, and, and Jung talks about it so much in, 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 in different, um, psychoanalytic thinkers too and in terms of like the collective unconscious and the archetypes that you know these certain um actual figures and characters that are universally felt in different people's minds and felt i mean it was interesting a young a young defined architect archetypes as instinctual forms of mental functioning um and that they're not inherited ideas, but mentally expressed instincts, forms, mm -hmm. and not contents. So this, any sort of, when we link up the images from archetypes, like we create these myths, and from the myths, um, there's this mirror of the collective unconscious. And so if if we can if we can see the sequence of archetypal images that return in the dreams we can create a kind of myth of ourselves and 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 myth of ourselves and world and where those overlap open up the door to people's ideas of what is actually real when you're talking about these people that come mm -hmm. and you can you move from being the kind of person who's like, oh, that was a funny, weird dream, to being like, there's a certain autonomy and realness and presence and and total validity to the the things that are happening happening in our dreams and the certain figures that come to our dreams. And of course, if they say something and speak to us, or something comes to us in in um in proximity to them that there's an incredible amount of power in those um in those figures and acknowledging them um yeah 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 i i agree and i mean uh i, I know you've been kind of like on a, a journey through the psyche and actually i i feel like i want to like off the record get the whole scoop yeah. <laughs> for everything that's been going on um but uh yeah i mean I, I i've definitely always paid attention to my dreams as a significant thing and um you know that's another like example of cliche like nobody wants to hear your dreams you know supposedly totally. supposedly when you are telling people what you dream they become bored and right. uh you know that to me also sounds like some kind of like nefarious conditioning from the lizard lords like they don't want us to converse <laughs> about that realm where we all meet every night <laughs> <laughs> tell them it's boring yeah yeah like tell them it's boring yeah. um and the fact that it's like so easily uh, forgotten or something I'm like who's erasing them what's happening here uh so uh you know i'm, I'm telling well, I, like, I like the idea that I, th I think it was Freud. you said that the forgetting of the dream is itself part of the dream yeah 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 once i thought of that 
I was like, oh, wow. And then, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want, I don't want to interrupt you. But I was thinking about um, Kublai Khan and Coleridge. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. how he was, he fucking had that long, you know, out of time dream in which the entirety of that poem was presented to him. And he managed to record that much of it. But then, you know, as as the story goes, mm-hmm. but what was what I thought was is that the Lizard Lord's interference was bringing that person from Pollock or whatever it was, like some random town it was like the man from. Yeah, it was a person from Porlock. Is the person from? Yeah, from Porlock came fucking on like a you know a boring business inquiry or something you know like some practical need was like and he had to go talk to him and then when he came back and of course yeah. I'm sure was like I'll never forget this there's no fucking way I'm gonna forget this dream yeah but when he gets back he forgot but I kept thinking like it's almost like that person who came was like made manifest like some trickster archetypal dream figure who like infiltrated reality and like came in and yeah, yeah, you know, uh, totally. Uh, I was actually looking at Kublai Khan today, and I was actually remembering how much that poem like struck me. I uh, so this is like my one of my early sort of like teenage uh, love affairs was with the English, like like British uh, romantics, mm-hmm. and the whole like you know, um, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. It's like this like Byronic vir- vir- figure or something, uh, and then the person from Porlock like shows up. And then I remember that Stevie Smith has a poem called Thoughts About the Person from Porlock. Have you ever seen this? Oh my God, no, but I'm so... I have so to. I'm, I'm going to try to chat this over to you. But it's really funny because she she go, she starts with, Coleridge received the person from Porlock and ever after called him a curse. Then why did he hurry to let him in? He could have hid in the house. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, then, he totally did it to him. So he, did, he was so unconsciously, it was all part of it. Yeah, and then it's really, I mean, Stevie Smith is so, so funny and amazing. And, but then the poem ends with, I, I, she's talking about like, I long for the person from Porlock to bring my thoughts to an end. I'm becoming impatient to see him. I think of him as a friend. <laughs> she's like, where is he? Where is he? I'm thinking too much. Wait, I'm going to send this to you. It's so funny. Oh, I have to see this. Oh, no, I can't. I don't think I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chat it over to you. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. The thing that interrupts. And then, like, what would happen if if the dream wasn't interrupted? And you know, obviously, that's death, right? Um, right, right. So, right. I know there's something about the veil that comes down that keeps us in the living. And, um, well, you know, then I'm thinking of that the the dream of being alive. But, um, but the not knowing all that unknowing all of that uh all of that strangeness of our mind and our consciousness and it's and it's unknowable unconscious material yeah that's it's, it, it's so amazing because i i was thinking too about nietzsche saying that uh this is i had this written in a later question sorry bianca no, sorry no. future bianca editing or asking the question again um but that the dreamer is never passive the dreamer mm-hmm. is never passive and mm-hmm. this that even these you know the woman with with the 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 face on the back of her head and on the on the front even these 
these uh, people who seem to be or people or beings that seem to be outside of our own self that seem to be doing something to us in some ways are part of us too and that it's all somehow that there's this hidden part of ourself that is autonomous with us and yet we are not part of the knowing of their actions but but we are mm -hmm. um which is why dreams and poetry are so linked it seems because so much of the writing of the poem is as we see in your book a working through of the dream itself but also the dreaming happens within the poem too that there's all this unknowable event that is happening while we're writing it and while it's coming out and that lives on the page yeah 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 uh, i mean for sure uh, i th that uh yeah, I, I love that that idea that the dream, uh, the forgetting of the dream, is keeping us in um, in life in a way. Um, and um, you know, these people um, that come to us are some um, manifestation of ourselves, but also something more. I mean, that figure, the spinning figure. I remember I had a, um, I, I had another dream that the same person came. Um, but in the guise of like a supernatural old lady, kind of like a Baba Yaga figure yeah. um, who like uh, berated me in like our language uh, for shutting her out. And I think that was like supposed to be a warning against forgetting creation and, and kind of oh, le leaving almost like leaving like the mythical sphere of my heritage, Shit. you know, um, and um and then she turned into like a kind of like a powerful like she monster. It was like so this dream was so terrifying. It was like this kind of bare, tall courtyard, almost like looked like a prison courtyard. And she um, uh, kind of like just to show me her power morphed into various fairy tale characters, almost kind of like mocking like Disney villains, like turning into mm -hmm. like the. Um, uh, what 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 is it? Uh, um, the hor the horned uh, uh, Angelina Jolie played her. <laughs> oh, Maleficent. Yeah, yeah. She was like turning to yeah. Maleficent, and she was turning uh, like into um, uh, like the evil the the evil people, or just yeah, people. yeah, kind of like morphing through like Disney villains, showing the me villains, like, see, I, I, I can I can do this this like ridiculous culture that you've embraced. Yeah, but but somehow she embodied a kind of mythology that was deep, mm -hmm. deep and ancient and old and showing you these cartoon versions that have diluted all this time that in even even in the cartoon versions now that we have, it's still a fucking it's still got the myth in there. It's still got these mm -hmm. resident and maybe even these new bastardized versions say are part of a new myth now that we're part of that speak to something as well. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, there's not to defend Disney, but like, no, 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 for oh. sure. Like, they're still getting passed on. And I think, like, uh, from this lady, <laughs> yeah, I think it was kind of like, see, I'm all of these, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm every villain. <laughs> you know? That's right. You yeah, know? yeah. And she was saying, well, see, like, I can do all this. This is all you, too. That was the whole point. It was like, it's you, too. 
I was just um, this amazing book, Trauma and the Soul by Donald Kaushid, um, mm. talks a lot about the inner world and the mythopoetic and like um, deep into Dante and Blake. Uh, but like he talks in this one part about um, Symington. I don't, I'm not sure who that is, but they're quotes from him. Um, his books were the spirit of sanity, the patterns of madness. Right up our alley. Um, but the sort of like duality of the, the inner, the God that we hold within us um there is a god that gets in the way of two people coming to know each other there is a god who interferes with my thinking there is a god who demands that i follow his instructions there is a god who punishes me if i think for myself there is a god who sanctions my sadism a god who encourages my masochism a god who fosters my greed who fosters my en envy who fosters my jealousy a god who possesses me but despises me a god who solves problems by obliterating them and then the other one is you know and this is sort of like the self this is like the sort of super ego or um you know there's different ways to talk about it but like and then the other one is sort of like the healthy god you know like the light like the one that that wants to 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 show you you know goodness and nurturing and like creativity and like making things and like seeing things from different angles and I was struck by how, uh, you know, and two, he, he acknowledges that we, you know, we all hold these different shared mythological and real parts of ourself, just as Dante explored going into the Inferno, but that people who have had more early experiences of the disruption in their um, psyche in trauma ha are, are it's like a more intense relationship with these parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it feels so apparent in dreams itself, like in dreams itself, the more, you know, some people they're like, I don't dream. Like <laughs> they say that, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, but, but they do dream. They're just not remembering it. But I think there's, there's so much in in not dismissing our dreams as this cliche just like neurological like need to just process the day so your brain doesn't fry out <laughs> um but actually a reality uh in which information and and is richly there to be gleaned and and not gleaned and never known yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I think I sent you like now the last moment that uh, essay I wrote on Goblin Market, and, oh, and I'm and I'm talking about this uh, recurring dream that still to this day I have of this like um, kind of like ta uh, tower, a sort of palace mansion that's uh, very dilapidated. I compare it to Hal's moving castle because it really does feel like it could like crumble at any moment. 
Um, and uh, I'm always drawn to this one particular room. And it's kind of like in the back of the um, structure. But uh, although it's maybe, you know, it's like up the stairs, maybe it's first or second floor, uh, the ceiling is as high as the whole thing. Um, so it reach, it's a very like tall, it doesn't really have any stories above it. So it's like an ex- extremely like tall chamber and it's full of like stuff. It's full of, uh, well, first of all, like there's tables like that are full of fruit, there's books. And I'm always like trying to look at this stuff. And in the dream, it feels like this is my room. This is my room. And whenever mm-hmm. I see this palace in the dream, uh, I often have a kind of like a semi-lucid experience with this place because it's happened so many times. I'm like beelining it for that room. I'm like, I'm going there to like maximize my time. And like a few, in a few times, you know, uh, I dreamed that I was, um, so first, like I, I had these obsessions that I had to clean it up. It all, it was all like this old dusty furniture and like, uh, I imagine it as like all the detritus from all my past lives is stored there somehow. Um, and so at first I had this obsession, I had to clean this place up and now I'm kind of like embracing it. I kind of love that it's sort of, I love it in its awfulness. I love it. It's almost like almost organic in its dilapidation that these like books are growing into the table. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, that like uh, trees are growing out of the fruit. And sometimes uh, like a couple of times I dreamed that I brought a friend there. And then this friend that this book is dedicated to Tamara, uh, I actually had a dream with her in that place after she passed and she was really excited and she was like, I'm moving here. We're moving in here together. Oh my God. Um, And I was so excited. I was like, yes, it's going to be us in this place. Um, And we used to be roommates. So that makes sense as well. But um, uh, anyway, like this place, you know, where, what the hell is this coming from? You know, I never saw this, you know, (laughs) yeah. uh, who built this, who put all these things there? Why, like, why are the details always the same? Did my brain do that? And if so, you know, how, you know, how, 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 how was it accomplished? And, you know, how would you even read that? You know, what is that? Um, You know, people have different interpretations. Like if you see a house, it's like you, your personality or something, right? Um, So, yeah, but I was thinking of it it also in terms of like the war, like, you know, maybe it has to do, maybe like this sort of obsession with uh, dilapidated structures has to do with like seeing destruction or... Then, you know, I saw a Twitter thread and I actually tried to find it. I stupidly didn't save it. But it was like somebody saying, listen, like I'm always going to the same place in my dreams. It's like the city and and like I'm, I kind of know it by now. It's no place I've ever mm-hmm, been. Mm-hmm. Uh, like does anyone else have these experiences? And of course, like hundreds of people are pouring in with like their tweets about how, yes, you know, I always ha- I, I have this and that place. And, you know, how come it's always the same spot? And, you know, like. Um, it's, it seems to be very universal and also this uh, uh, sort of motif of dilapidation like huge like industrial hangers that have uh, that have long fallen to disuse or some kind of like antiquated technology or future technology or um, so you know like a lot of like similar um, uh, motifs are popping up and I'm like what is what is going I on know. I know it makes you think like there it's almost like there is an actual world yeah, maybe there is an actual world. Yeah. And and the more we talk and think about consciousness and shared consciousness and what that there's no one answer. It's just it's an endless pursuit. That's the good work of knowing and not knowing, of having that veil up and being alive. Yes, when we die, maybe we'll 
know a lot of course we'll we'll know something something will happen differently but um but how fun and and fruitful it is to talk with one another about about these experiences within the the, the you couldn't get more personal than in somebody's head mm-hmm. in their psyche in their unconscious you couldn't get more intimate and personal and yet there is something so utterly shared in it um, yeah yeah i mean and and those things make it into poems too like a lot of poems in this book new life are uh you know either straight up dream poems or they have like uh, uh you know sh- shavings of dreams and uh totally. that that palace is actually in it Yep. Um, because my experience was so one time when I wanted to like kind of like fix the pal- the ruined palace, I I started lucid dreaming and I realized, wait, I can just wave my hand and it's going to become like perfect. And yeah. so I waved my hand and it turned into this like perfect like this like modernist Disney castle, like brutalist <laughs> Disney castle. And then I was like, that's great. And you know what? It would even be better with a rainbow. And then I waved my hand another time and there was a double rainbow above it. <laughs> uh, and I, I felt like I hacked like my dreams. I was like, you yeah. Yes. Your dreams. but then the next time i came it was all messed up again <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. um but uh so that made it into uh, a poem uh in in here called sometimes and like that's kind of i i'm giving that action to the lover in the poem um uh, put a double rainbow over the ruined castle with a touch of your finger you set it on fire the rainbow is burning um, I love that poem so much. So, like, there's a lot of that sprinkled in, and I always think of that those images too, like this land that we go to, whether it's you know uh, uh, on whatever level that land is real. Um, I I do think of it kind of like as you know free money. It's like you can come back from there, um, you know, and maybe bring something. Um, yeah, I know. I always think that when I. When I feel very frustrated about forgetting something mm-hmm. in my sleep, and I remember it being so important, just like Coleridge, I I think to myself, I have to believe that it's that some part of me, of course, remembers, and it will find its way into what it needs to be part of. And then also, I I get better at remembering and writing down the moment it comes. I had this, it's like. I remember this morning I was like I all I could it was like if it comes as a contained line it's a Mm -hmm. fucking gift from Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) but it the forgetting is so quick and so absolute uh even though in the moment of saying it it feels so permanent um yeah but I only got the second part of the line but was it and it was well actually i'm missing a part man is meant to blank oh nice (laughs) that is the work (gasps) but he gets lost in the machine of his moving wow and yeah and and i know a part of it too was like saying saying too little saying too little and not saying enough but that's the same thing Hmm. saying too little and not saying enough saying too little and saying too much i don't know that's amazing though that that, yeah oh wow the moving part is really great 
Yeah, he gets lost in the machine of his moving. The machine of his moving. Yeah. Now that that's what I call free money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So back to your book, love is such a massive theme in this book, and it and it seems right from the start to be an embodied, personified, actual being. And I think this is appropriate in terms of talking about what it means when our minds personify abstract ideas or like sensations or like ineffable phenomenon such as love. Mm-hmm. Um, but you start off right with I, I, that you would invite the clown love yeah. to your birthday. Um, so, and then the the poem I stood outside, which I think that's the poem you just were mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah where it transforms the poet speaker into holding love as an actual thing, mm-hmm. which which resurrects it from from non being. Um, but then it also turns into you know like water, but it seems you know it moves like water, so you can't really hold it. Um, and I was thinking of the Dante quote and I was wondering about how love fits into dreams Mm. and certainly desire fits into dreams and where desire and love are, uh, is such a huge discussion too. Um, you say in one line let's see you in the in the poem i put Mm. when you like a thing of mine it's like being touched by a ghost in a dream of whoever's haunting who (laughs) like a thing of mine it's like being touched by a ghost in a dream so this is essentially you know a love poem it's like when when this person shows you know, affection towards something I've made or done or have. Uh, it's like being touched by a ghost in a dream of whoever's haunting who. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess, you know, in terms of how love manifests in dreams, but also just like love in this book and of course it's dedicated to somebody who is no longer here so grief and love seem wrapped up in it but it's also called new life so it feels like well life not yeah grief. Um, yeah i mean that, that's like what they say when you draw the uh, death card in tarot they say don't be afraid it means a new beginning a rebirth <laughs> right it's like yeah you you say that now <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah i think love does uh go through a lot of transformations in this book from like person to uh, object and that line and um I, I stood outside actually is talking to a line from Wiener's um john Wiener's poem for painters he writes i had love once in the palm of my hand see the lines there and I love that. I love the idea of holding it, but then, of course, like it running through your fingers, like the proverbial sand, because it's not a thing, or like turn, or like becoming alive, right? Biting you. Uh, I, I love the idea of like thinking you're holding like a little figurine of a snake, but then actually it's a real snake. <laughs> you know, and I feel uh, th- there's 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 something there. Um, there's something to do with love there. Yeah. Um, 
so um yeah yeah i think i think uh um you know it, it is like this kind of precious thing and uh, it actually it's uh, speaking of like um you know dreams and love i and college i was also reminded of that college poem which is like one of my favorite things also um that one uh, what if you slept and what if in your sleep you dreamed and what if in your dream you went to heaven and there plucked a strange and beautiful flower and what if when you awoke you had that flower in your hand ah what then <laughs> you know it's like freak but, out but yeah exactly freak out so like it's kind of like uh, you know there's something uh, there's like a parallel there with love too like so what if you get it? Then what? And then you have to like take right. care of it and you have to keep it and you better make it great. You better make it last. You know, then you're in a different kind of uh, trouble, right? Exactly. Well, that's a good kind of trouble. I, I like that kind of trouble. <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. So, um, um, uh, and another thing I was reminded of was, um, so this was a, another like kind of like dream uh, st story that I loved it so much and I couldn't find a translation of it. I ended up translating part of this story. It's by Alexander Grin, a Russian writer, and the story is called Power of the Incomprehensible. And uh, it's about like a violinist who hears the perfect melody in his dream. But whenever he wakes up, uh, you know, he forgets it. And so he uh, goes to a hypnotist thinking that if he's hypnotized, he might be able to play it. And the hypnotist, hypnotist will tell him whether it's really something or not. Right. Uh, and so he goes there and, um, you know, the hypnotist uh, puts him under and, um, you know, sure enough, um, you know, he starts playing this incredible melody, um, like um, um, this melody that like, it's like unlike anything either of them has ever heard. Uh, and when he describes it to the hypnotist, um, he, um, he, descri he describes it as, wait, where is it? I'm trying to find it. I want to read it. It's so great. Um, Perhaps the entire past and present world of music will disappear in the midst of new discoveries, like seeds disappear when they grow into flowers, or like the caterpillar finally revealed revels of becoming a butterfly. Uh, perhaps even the entire consciousness of mankind will change, shifted from its foundations, since, I repeat and I believe, the power of that music has something divine and destructive about it. Mm. And then he gets put under, and sure enough, he plays the song, and the hypnotist realizes this music is so powerful that it could destroy the whole world. Like, if people hear this, you know, there's going to be revolutions, wars, murders. You know, he realizes, like, like, mankind can't handle this. Humankind can't handle this, right? And so when the guy wakes up, he tells him, oh, you just played, like, a medley of, like, old show tunes. <laughs> so, you know, that's, like, another thing, like, uh, the, that, like, song of, like, um, triumph and desire and destruction um, uh, also something that I was thinking of uh, in connection to love like um, you know when we have it like can we can we handle it can we hold it uh, or does it burn too much uh, you know back to that uh, epigraph <laughs> from the beginning I mean, I mean you capture this so well in um you know, a couple of these long poems th that I really want you to read, and I'm going to get to this in a second because I wanted to talk about sound. Um, but I wanted to say about the violin is I keep uh, finding references to violins in poems um, and making 
photocopies of them, including one of your poems and including a Rilke poem. And I had this very profound dream, uh, not that long ago, but, but four or five months ago, um, about a violin and it was, it was actually my therapist on stage Mm. and I was wandering around this room of like, it was like a party and everyone was just gossiping and being, you know, bitching about other people and stuff. And I was, went up to the front row and was like gossiping to Ben, my husband. And then I realized that my therapist was up on stage with somebody playing violin. Wow. And I looked up and I started listening and it was like the most wrenching music like ran through me, like unbelievable. And I thought, how in the world could I be not watching this? Like, how could I not see this? And it was so, like, I'll never forget the feeling that I had in the dream of the beauty of that music. Wow. And then uh-huh. in, a, in another profound dream, you know when you know a dream is profound? It's like you know something happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like something, yeah. Like something really important was in that dream. And it came back again. I found in, I won't go into the whole dream, but like basically it was a record. I found this scratchy old record. And oh my it, God. Said, it said it said something on it and I put it on the record player and it was, it was supposed to be Chopin. And it was like somebody said, oh, this is your grandmother's favorite Chopin record. And they put it on and it was like the music again, just like tore through me. I couldn't, I could barely handle how beautiful and wrenching the music was. But it's interesting you tell this story because when I think about it, I think about how the music was almost unbearable and that it distinctly didn't have any words to it. And um, I was, I think it was the Requiem for your poem, the Requiem for George Michael's hologram. Mm -hmm. Um, So, oh boy, I'm so far from like continuity in my questions. I'm sorry. Forget forget about it. This is amazing. Um, So maybe you heard the dream from uh, the short story, The Power of the Incomprehensible. Maybe you heard that song. I mean, well i'd never yeah well then i think about you know um in the roca poem uh you know i think it's the might even be the first elegy where he's like you know sometimes the sound of a violin out of a window like arrests you or something you know and it's kind of about Mm -hmm. poetry right Mm -hmm. um or or you know or not hearing the sound like something about us not hearing the sound but the and the poem the other poem that he mentions a violin to is is like a love poem. Uh, so to me, the the sound itself there was something akin to love in there, but there was also something akin to like inability to bear mm. and and have and actually remember that song. Um, I was thinking. what is music in a dream and Mm. what does it mean to hear something in a dream? Um, 
and and to think you're hearing sound but you're not hearing sound but to have sound be incredibly there and present and and specific uh a melody the sensation that comes with sound but not having sound there any poet could say you know a poem is not sound but it is sound um can you read your george michael's hologram poem (laughs) (laughs) i i i I, i'm it's you know i'm yeah just read the George Michael. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, the the violin. So first of all, just to say say this to you, I I played the violin very poorly when I was little. So these violins come from my violin playing, and I still have the violin. I've been carrying this darn violin. It survived the war. It survived all the moves. It's still there, and somebody needs to tune this thing because it's still like uh, viable <laughs> violin. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard instrument to to practice. You I know? mean, it's like, not like a guitar. It's not like gonna. It's it's like wrenching. It's like un, talk about unbearable and wrenching. Like you can't hear somebody practicing the violin. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, year. that's the thing. Like when I was little, like I there was a whole saga about which instrument I ended up with. But I kind of wanted to play the cello. But in Croatia, for some reason, they wouldn't start you with a cello. There were no little like baby cellos. Yeah, but so, here, it's like everyone's a baby cellist. Yeah. Uh, so they wanted to start us with a violin, and then like if we showed promise, move on to the cello. But like I was just an awful violin player, and it was like, like grating my ears. Like I, I just re- I remember like I had this beautiful violin teacher. He was this gorgeous man. He he wore like flowing white shirts, kind of like the Seinfeld pirate shirt. And all my little friends were like looking up to this man. And he was my teacher, but I like feared him <laughs> because I was such a terrible player. And I, I just remember like him kind of like sitting in in his like blue, beautiful white shirt, like holding his brow, and me going like wah. You know, it's really like, it, it is a painful, it's a painful instrument to get started on unless you really have a thing for it, you know, and then it's a different story. But what a payoff. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to George Michael. So this actually, uh, this poem absolutely is basically like a transcript of a lucid dream. So this actually happened in my dreams. Um, so it's just a description of, or it's like as faithful as possible uh, a transcription of what happened in the dream and um, there was no person from Porlock, so I got it all. Um, so here it is. Requiem for George Michael's hologram. I snapped too in the middle of the dream party when at the same time across the room you did the same. We looked up and locked eyes. We were the only ones aware this side of sleep. In a city full of dreamers living their best and worst lives, we were wide awake in a fantastic mood. What are the odds? I looked down and saw four perfect red leaves in an almost random pattern on the raw concrete and laughed. I had made this world in all its detail and so it was real. This is real, I said. Let's get out of here. Outside in the street, we went to try flying. We held hands and rose and flew all over. The little city mists clung to high balconies. The last pine tree shone by a billionaire's roof pool, and we flew up into the clouds, holding each other's elbows like ballroom dancing. It's real, we kept saying and laughing. It's a dream, but it's real. This is real. Then I woke up, this time for real, the only one still dreaming in the city of the living. I'm old here, and time goes by in weird eddies and loops. 
They inject my system with viruses, fatigue, trauma, anxiety, and you're floating away from me, a good song from a passing car. Everyone's always going away here, forgetting their dreams, redeployed by desire, aka economy, except yours truly, condemned to level one by my failure to dance along with the code, believe in the city, the rain, that I should just let it all play out, but it's not real. I know by how they keep playing back the song from the dream to remind me of all I've lost, just to drive it home. I'm never going to dance again. No, I'm never going to dance again. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that was very powerful in your book and is a theme in your poetry in general is your use of the elements. Mm. The elements in the in the nat- in the world as we know it and it's and its systems like the sun and the moon and rain and the earth and fire and wind. Uh, I, I, I've been I've been reading some uh, a bachelor uh, who writes about a poetics of air, fire, earth, and water. He has something he calls the law of the four material imaginations. Anyway, he ascribes like different like qualities like will or imagination to different elements. So, in terms of talking about dreams, we seem to edge into the binary of light and dark, conscious, unconscious, night and day. The sun is as much a part of your book as water is, which is one of the most strong and consistent themes throughout it too. Um, And it's, of course, water and sun are so life-giving. So uh, Ovid when so when the earth after the flood still muddy took the heat felt the warm fire of sunlight she conceived this surely is our ability to make the vivid sun of consciousness i love this quote too i was looking in the book of symbols that i have Mm. that said um soul was also the quote gold, the quote yellow balsam, the truth behind the capacity of consciousness for self-healing and rejuvenation through immersion in moist lunar-like feelings, moods, and dreams reflecting the magical and mercurial. Mm. The regenerated Son of the philosophers was both transparent and opaque, a sun and a consciousness paradoxically both light and shadow. You have your beautiful poem, Ode to the Sun, and then you also have the one of my favorite poems have ever written. 15 to 1 on light, mm. <laughs> which is uh, so good. Um, and they both very particularly explore light. And each seems to, and you've mentioned this before in our conversation, in conversation with artificial light and technology, the phone. Um, so I was wondering if you could, uh, as we come to an end here, uh, um, read us... Um, both those poems. Alrighty. So which one should we start with? Let's start with uh, 15 to 1 on light. Okay. That one also has 
a dream in it. Um, let me find it. Yeah. Uh, so the premise for this poem was um, to write a poem that started, which where each stanza started with fifty. First stanza started with fifteen lines, and then each stanza decreases by a line until, in the end, we have one line, and then poof, zero lines. Um, so this is fifteen to one online. And the machine mentioned, of course, is the phone. On my machine, I saw wondrous things. A building pointy like a stiletto, a glacier folding and floating past a village. Your whole new life and the life I can project outward like the sun throwing flares to preclude implosion within. On my machine, I've seen wondrous things, but never like when you come into a room and light shines through, radioactive, like there was something to it all in the end and it was going to be okay. On a show I watch, I saw a pirate say, I'm ruined over you, and that's how I feel. A heart x-ray, no, heart xerox, revealed a peeling room in a crypt, a awful literary fate of poverty and exile, authenticity, and a whole other pile of demons that I can't shake to be like you, like air, like the drums of a drummed-up kingdom. Punked and drunk on the breath of the second world I made, I sleep and wait to be delivered from my pains of want, by what? I have no idea. And in a dream, I saw the perfect village and everyone I loved so young and even the animals I loved all resurrected in this babely heaven under the fir trees, tossing a silver ball back and forth and calling to me, Anna, to forget my misery and come among my family and know what love is again in endless time. Anna, but then remember how you said it to me, the end in my name dark as wood, a tree trunk from which grow two vowels of light. It's a crown of light. And I forsake my family and friends and follow you through the woods. And I sit in peeling rooms waiting for that light to roll on through like ball lightning, eerie and swampy now, coloring evening in cemetery pink, making everything and everyone I love be crinkled dead flowers with its flash. It couldn't possibly be love, this awful life, could it? So what are you then? What do you mean by shedding yourself onto life until it's the color of death, graying and crinkled flowers? If you're not love, then you're not my light. I'll be the light. Hmm. And I think that was, I think I said, I say haven, not heaven in the poem. But that was, I think, the only thing I messed up. So, yeah, and, and so, um, yeah, there's like a dream in this poem of this perfect village. And that actually is from a folk story, uh, a creation folk story. There's this amazing book that's like so foundational for me. It's called Tales of Long Ago, Priče iz Davnine. And it's this creation writer, Ivana Brlić-Mazuranić, who kind of like transcribed or like basically rewrote these like kind of classic tales. And in the story, um, basically, it's like a long story, but this uh, the this old woman like comes to the court of the king of the forest because she was wronged, and he offers her like he shows her this like a perfect village uh, of her youth, and she sees everyone you know who long since has passed away as young, and he tells her you can like come into this village and be young again and like you know live with your the friends of your youth forever. Um, but the price is that she forgets her son who wronged her. 
and uh she rejects of course she like mm. she she uh you know doesn't accept like all the joy possible uh if the price is to forget her suffering um, to forget her child um so Jesus. um so yeah it, this, this, <laughs> I know. so yeah this this story is like um kind of heavy but um yeah, that's amazing yeah but so i thought about this because like that's kind of like part of like the suffering of love is like okay like if you were given a cho- like uh what is that um uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind if you were given the option to erase it you know would you do it you know and so sometimes you want to hold it dear even if it's um even if it's hard i know and it, but it's so it's so true there's something so true in that that we have this strange idea that love is well it's idealistic and it's erotic mm-hmm. and yet this there's so much suffering involved with love too that is and it's not like a martyrdom necess- you know it's not like i you know like a masochism right Mm -hmm. it's it's an inevitability and it's also a joy there's of course like total pleasure in suffering and as you know it doesn't it's not even hard to come to that conclusion if you look at your own um patterns in your life that there's a yeah there's there's that that longing First, I mean, just longing alone. Um, well, yeah, it's like your ego is getting reconstituted completely. So yeah. that's not very comfortable. <laughs> but yeah. it's, I think, pretty useful, actually. But in your poem, too, in this poem, the ending, uh, what do you mean by shedding yourself onto life until it's the color of death, graying and crinkled flowers? If you're not love, then you're not my light. I'll be the light. I, I love that that turning towards the power of the self and yeah. not rely, relying on the outside. Well, source. like yeah, like the uh, so like the light we follow is it always like a good thing? Like there there can be such a thing as too much sunshine. These right. lights here are the, the phone lights. The blue yeah. lights are not a good light, you know. Uh, like we are like moth to the flame in, in case mm. of the phones, right? So yeah, like I, I liked uh, imagining like an illumination that's not necessarily benevolent, and mm-hmm. with the climate getting ever hotter <laughs> every day, yeah. yeah, you know, we it's real, uh, yeah, we're experiencing it firsthand. Uh, but yeah, there's also the ode to the sun, which is um, which is much more positive. And that one is kind of like a that's kind of like a sad poem about um, working in an office all day, like illuminated by the blue light of the computer. And uh, you know, I, I spent many years uh, my life doing this, um, having no choice, um, or so I thought. Um, so like often I would find myself walking to the train and like going into the subway and realizing, wow, like when I, when I'm out on the street again, it's going to be nighttime. And this, this is like my moment with the sunshine. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like this precious thing, like this thing that like, again, I wish that I could like grab it and put it in my pocket, but I couldn't. <laughs> um, so I'll read you that one. That's the O to the sun. Um. I follow the others across the crosswalk face to the sunlight. 
Son, this is where we part ways. It might be the last time I see you today, descending into the underground where I'm spelled to spend how much of my life thundering on trains, deep in dreams, locked forever in a neon box illuminated by a digital screen, high up in the air in the forest of stories where a stray ray of sunlight sometimes seeks me out, like being touched by a thought. Bright star, though I worship you when I like to burn things, and will the burning bring me back to you again? I set my life on fire. It's warm. Feels like love on my face. And of course, that's Keats's bright star. Yeah. Um, but there's something about the sun. Like, so I always remembered this scene. I was like, of course, re- I always been rereading the myth of Orpheus. And there is this uh, beautiful movie from 1959 called uh, Orfeo Negro that takes place in Rio. And like this uh, uh, little boy is Orpheus and uh, he makes the sunrise like he, he's like playing um, into the into the sunrise. And, you know, his friends are like, make the sunrise, make the sunrise. And, oh, my God. Uh, you know, his song makes the sunrise. So this idea that Orpheus could make the sunrise and like how uh, the poet might have that power i i did not feel like i had that power because every time i left work it was dark but right. I, I i like to think i might have that power well when you wrote this poem i felt i felt it yeah i felt i felt like frederick the mouse like you know how in the the that children's book frederick they all say frederick they're all like gathering corn and food <laughs> for the winter and they're like frederick what are you doing and he's like I'm gathering rays of sunlight. That's but, right. You know, and then yeah. they all run out of food and they're all like miserable. And they're like, what about your gatherings, Frederick? And then he like recites poems to them and they're all like, ah. Oh, they're yeah. so happy. They can feel the sun mm-hmm. on them. That's something to hold on to when uh, broke as broke poets, we're yeah. warming our, our uh, <laughs> frosty <laughs> fingertips. <laughs> well, when when one is, you know, not participating in work in the same way as the others Mm -hmm. um still very crucial work is being done yeah in our in our repose for sure well Um, i've always felt like you know uh the the day jobs are like their own kind of dream world you go there and you're somebody else you're linda for a few hours you're (laughs) You're linda and then you go home and you're you (laughs) yeah yeah I was thinking you had, you've been doing such incredible work as a teacher and talking about dreams and poetry and how they function together. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could give us some of the prompts that you use uh, as a teacher. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, um, well, I just taught, I'm I'm teaching this, um, um, uh, class at the 92nd Street Y called uh, The Poem Within. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of the um, like methods we're using to accessing the hidden wellsprings of poetry, like the idea is kind of like uh, when I'm frozen, you know, where, how do I tap into it? Like, how do I, how do I touch the root? Uh, yeah. Uh, the, um, whatever the, wherever the stream is coming from and so yeah dream work is definitely like part of that and um um you know i i 
give my students uh, a lot of like different readings to kind of put them in touch with like other dream poems and you know a lot of, like surrealist writing techniques and um, some uh, visual uh, arts to look at and then um, uh, so the a couple of prompts I had recently was um, to create a visual poem that illustrates a dream or vision you've had um, kind of in the spirit of illustrated poem. Yeah. Like a visual poem. Um, So like in the spirit of Blake or whatever else, you know, it might uh, mean like maybe the poem would take the shape of a significant object or something Um, to write a poem as a soundtrack to recurring dream. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I like that idea of like a soundtrack to a dream. Um, uh, to write a poem that takes place in a dream space. Um, again, like those, um, you know, spaces we, we see in our dreams. Uh, and just to kind of like think about like your language of images, like dreams are like image space, right? Like we talk about hearing music and maybe seeing words we can't read, but like images are like the currency of dreams, right? And um, that's so... That's right, that's right. Um, like Pasolini, who was a poet and a filmmaker, he writes in his essay, The Cinema of Poetry, that dreams have the characteristic of a cinematic sequence. And I feel like I often try try for that in poetry. So like yep. kind of like what is your language of images, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, that's part of, I guess, of establishing that like personal mythopoetics. <laughs> that, yeah. That's like the fun part of being a poet is building your own cosmology, building your own world. So yeah, kind of like immersing yourself in your language of images. Uh, that's so personal to you where, you know, like a spoon might mean nothing to me, but there might be some precious childhood spoon that contains the whole world for somebody else. So Yeah, and when those images are put in the poem, even if you don't fully understand them, but you sense something is there mm-hmm. that's meaningful, then that's when the reader really steps in and can make meaning out of it. Cause they, it, it'll probably, I sense that collective unconscious resonance when it, when a dream is put into a poem, you can, you can, I can tell when people put dreams into poems, even if they don't say it's a dream, has that, has that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, Smells like a dream. <laughs> smells like a dream. If it sounds like a dream and it smells like a dream. Yeah. And it flies like a dream. Or, you know, maybe they're just tapping into a sort of kind of that dream sequence that you were saying, that that cinematic se- sequential yeah. non, non-sequitur. <laughs> the sequential non-sequitur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that I've, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that is indicative of, of the dreams. And um, I love that. Any 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 final ones or it's sorry. that's that's good. Um, sounds sounds good to me. You know, I'm like, what what haven't we discussed? It's all that we see or seem, but a dream within a dream. <laughs> uh, <laughs> buy buy new life, get new life from Wayne yeah. Books. Uh, yeah, on on his book, New Life. Oh, purchase so also good. what is otherwise infinite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to see the amazing the, the amazing spectacle of two books books yeah. talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, double feature. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Take that, Oppenheimer and Barbie. <laughs> I know we're too similar to be. That's not a good analogy. <laughs> Sto- Stonechevich. Yeah, stone. 
Stone Nietzschevich. Stone Nietzschevich. <laughs> Did they say Bar Barbenheimer? Barbenheimer. Oh, Barbenheimer. Yeah, Barbenheimer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, so <laughs> demonic in that. <laughs> I know, it's totally demonic. It's still raining. It's raining here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Odin Psyche Podcast. You can always contact me at Bianca at RuthStoneHouse.org or on social media at Bianca Stone. Please buy Anna Bushichevich's book, New Life, at WavedPoetry.com or wherever poetry books are sold. Thank you to Walter Stone for this beautiful piano music. <laughs> <laughs>